but you can sell cars. Uh, you can sell uh, phone equipment. There's a lot of things you can sell. It doesn't mean that you really suits. understand. You can sell suits, <laughs> right? But just because you just because you sell something doesn't mean that you understand that industry. So the work really comes in where you decide what side of the industry do I want to be on? Do I just want to sell stuff or do I really want to understand the intricacies of the market? Do I really want to understand the, the underlying risk uh, in, in the different segments of the market, the different asset classes of the market? Do I want to know how the math works? Do I, do I want to understand the nuances and the differences when it comes to uh, certain market forces, economic forces, macroeconomic forces, how the interest rates are going to affect certain vehicles and how you need to shift over time. Where are my resources? Where are my, uh, you know, where is my information coming from? That comes from, not sales, that comes from picking up a book and reading it. That is Wealth Manager Andre Julian. And on today's episode, we learn how he got his outwork you mindset and how he applies it day to day. Andre is definitely the real deal. So let's get to know him a little better. That with Trent the Jet, they like agents on top of pavements, peppermint patty fragrance. Taking the credits when they spits and spritz a chip and dip a dip and dell I pin the tail. Death throw the penalty ID, throwing identity, theft crime in the night, pick pop, keep the lock, stop, drop, roll the dice, double double dough, eat the rock road, crochambo, tic tac toe, crossing a roll with the nice flow with my industry, see me room, room, play monopoly with my commodities, stop the eyes and cross the teeth, teeth, teeth. How do you do, Venters? Welcome to this edition of Vent with Trent the Gent. And I'm laughing because my good friend Andre Julian just had a shocked look on his face when I called you Venters. But today, I or we have the honor to have Andre Julian, who is a wealth manager. He's been in that industry for um, 21 years, so since 1996. And so that lets you know that he knows exactly what he's doing in this business. And so hopefully we'll all glean some information, uh, maybe some insider tips that he might share with us today. But I want to welcome you, Andre, to the show. Thank you, Trent. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm excited for what's in store because I have no clue what you're going to ask me. <laughs> and that's what makes it great. So... Normally, we start with your beginnings, and but I want to know from you, so tell us where you were born, but then I want to know, in particular to you, what did your parents do? I was born in Buffalo, New York, which I've been told is a great place to be from. Uh, got out of there early. It's uh, For those of you from Buffalo, love the people, hate the weather. That's kind of the way it works. Uh, my mom is a school teacher and a lifetime educator. Okay. That's uh, what she's done. My dad is retired from the aerospace industry, so he was a mathematician and an engineer. Good. What qualities did you take from them? What was instilled in you as a young man to be the, the great man that you are today? Uh, how, how deep do you want me to go? As, as deep as, as you want. <laughs> okay. So, uh, and hopefully my dad is not listening. Uh, and I'll explain to you why. Uh, no, I, I love my dad, but uh, I'll give you an interesting story because there's, there's a specific reason uh, why I do things the way that I do. Uh, but my mom instilled a huge work ethic in me. Uh, that's one thing that she always taught me. You don't have to be the smartest. Uh, but the way that you become the best is you can outwork anybody. You can always outwork anybody. You can't outsmart everybody, but you can outwork anybody. And so that's what that's what I do in my business. That's what I do in my personal life. That's what I that's how I raise my daughter. Is you know I always tell her it's it's um, it's not aptitude. It's it's attitude. It's can you just grind it out? Uh, and if you can, well then that leads to success. Uh, so again. Um, 
I will outwork anybody, mm-hmm. period. And that's from her. That's directly from her. So as a wealth advisor, give me an example of a way in which you would outwork another. Because everything happens in the background. Uh, there are typically 80 to 90% of the advisors in this industry are salespeople. They think that they're in financial sales. They're selling stuff, they're selling products, they're selling insurance, selling mutual funds, selling annuities. They're selling things and their whole presentation is pitchy. You know, I use that word, it's pitchy. It's a lot of them have very smooth presentations, but really what it comes down to is they're selling performance, they're selling mutual funds and they're trying to get somebody excited about, you know, returns and track records. Uh, And that's unfortunately most of the industry and that's what people are used to. Uh, there's not a lot of work involved in that. The work comes in from being a good salesman, uh, which, but you can sell cars, uh, you can sell uh, phone equipment. There's a lot of things you can sell. It doesn't mean that you really suits. understand. You can sell suits, <laughs> right? But just because you just because you sell something doesn't mean that you understand that industry. So the work really comes in where you decide what side of the industry do I want to be on. Do I just want to sell stuff or do I really want to understand the intricacies of the market? Do I really want to understand the, the underlying risk uh, in, in the different segments of the market, the different asset classes of the market? Do I want to know how the math works? Do I, do I want to understand the nuances and the differences when it comes to uh, certain market forces, economic forces, macroeconomic forces, how the interest rates are going to affect certain vehicles? And how you need to shift over time. Where are my resources? Where are my, uh, you know, where is my information coming from? That comes from not sales. That comes from picking up a book and reading it. That comes from studying. That comes from gaining an understanding in statistics. That comes from research. That's a lot of work. That's hours and hours and hours a day when everybody else goes home, or before everybody else gets here. That's sitting down and saying, okay, time to open this research and time to comb through it and really make sure I understand what's going on with the, with the market. So it's all the stuff that nobody ever sees. So that goes beyond the continuing education that you're required to have in your industry, obviously? The continuing education in our industry is, it's 20 hours a year, 20 hours a year. And it's not that hard because if you've been in the industry, it's the same stuff. It's pretty easy to do. You go through it, you take it, you take a little quiz, you move on with your life. So the continuing education really is, it's, it's important and I'm glad that we have it, but it's, that's your base minimum that you have to do. But what about the 20, 30 hours, hours extra per week that I'll spend doing the stuff beyond that, that starts adding up. So I'm, I'm a huge proponent of the, you know, the 10,000 hour theory. Yeah. That, that you become, and I won't use the word expert because I don't believe you ever become an expert at anything. Because an expert, I think, gives the people the assumption that, oh, well, they've made it. There is no it. But you become highly proficient at something when you spend that time. And the only way to do it is to actually spend that time. And the other part of it is that this market is evolving. The global economy is evolving. Everything that we do evolves. If you don't change with the, the times and, you don't, and you're not constantly educated and re-educated, then you become a dinosaur. And I, I will not become a dinosaur in this industry. So we mentioned books. We mentioned the 10,000 hours. Obviously, you've read Malcolm Gladwell. What books come to mind that really has affected you either as a person or even a wealth advisor? Any books in particular? Well, the, the industry books are, are, they're industry books and they're boring. So if I said, okay, let's look at, you know, uh, applied economics in finance, probably nobody's too interested in that. That's just something that, that I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it comes down to books that have affected me, they're not they're not financial books. So you know what are so, what are some of them? Uh, 
I would hope that everybody has read this book. It's The Alchemist. Okay. Yes. I actually mentioned The Alchemist on one of my former podcasts. Yeah. I love that book. I think that book uh, really helps you respect the journey. It really helps you understand that, yes, the only way to get to where you are is not if it's given to you, but if you actually go through the process of getting there. And obviously one of the main themes in, the, is in that is what has the universe conspired to help you attain. Any examples of that in, in your life? Well, I think everything. I, I really, I, I'm, I'm of that school that there are no coincidences. You meet the people that you need to meet. And uh, it, it's up to you uh, to decide what to do with that. Uh, but also there's, there's something in that book that struck me. And I think it, I mean, it really affected me to the point where I realized, well, wait a minute, I really need to be conscious, which is that if you keep on turning your nose up at the gifts the universe gives you, it'll stop giving you gifts. And that, and that hit me and it made me think, how many people have I met that I didn't talk to, that were sitting right next to me that I didn't start a conversation with, or that wanted to be involved somehow and, and I, I just blew them off. And I started thinking about that and realized, realizing that, you know, those things happen to, to all of us. So it's, uh, I think, understanding that the people in your life and the events in your life have value. You're there for a reason. And sometimes the reason is as simple as, oh, well, you know what, I don't really need to know that person. And that's okay, but at least, at least you know. But oftentimes, I think you find these little treasures in, in unexpected places. So do you make it a point to strike up a conversation with everybody? I mean, you can just be in the store and the lady is looking at the produce next to you. And do you feel like that was meant to be, right? Well, the store is a bad example because I can't remember the last time <laughs> I went to a store. All right. Uh, so, I, you know... <laughs> Post office, I don't know, I'm dating myself. If I want to get a soup, someone's going to come to me to make that soup, right? <laughs> that, right? that too. Uh, where would you go? My wife, you... I love her to death. Uh, she's my partner in life, and she goes to the store. So. It has to be some point. So if you're just walking down the street, going to get lunch, and you're standing in line, and right next to you is someone, right? are you going to intentionally strike up a conversation because you felt like that person's here right next to me. There must be some chief purpose in us being this close in proximity. Yeah, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Not all the time. And, and part of me wishes I would do it all the time. Uh, I think that there's, there's always two things going on. There's one, what are you doing? Are you going somewhere? How much time do you have? Are you late to an appointment? I mean, there are things that weigh on you where you say, no, I don't have time to sit there and talk to anybody. But other times, yeah, you just strike up the conversation, make some kind of a comment, whatever it is, compliment them on something they're wearing, mm-hmm. you know, wherever it is. I think it has to be legitimate. You can't make things up. But yes. if you legitimately notice something about them, you say, oh, wow, you know what? My wife has those shoes. Or, oh, wow, you know, that uh, that's a great tie or something, whatever it is. And you never know where it leads. Yeah. You never know where it leads. So the alchemists, any other life-changing or altering books that you might have read? Man, you're putting me on the spot. I've read so... I've read so what many, about but the, the Richest Man in Babylon? Is that book... You know, I like that book. Uh, I like Think and Grow Rich mm-hmm. uh, better. I like The Power of Positive Thinking. Uh, I like uh, pretty much any, any book guess what they call them self-help self-help mm-hmm. books uh, which is fine you know I think you should help yourself I think that's the way that it uh, that it works uh, how to win friends influence people they, they all they all have overlapping messages though and they, the messages start to overlap so after a while I realized that you know people say well which book should I read the one that works for you mm-hmm. the one that works for you you don't have to keep on reading more books because I, I got into that habit too where I have uh, in my in my iBooks library, plenty of unread books. Because people here. keep recommending them. Exactly. I get it, and I don't read it because I'm still reading this other one. And then so I, I 
put a moratorium, no more books. I, I, I have to get through all the books that I have currently before I get a new mm -hmm. one. Uh, but then there are certain ones that you that you go to and you realize those those lessons are there. You know, even The Secret, I think it's a great book. You know, and there are others, uh, Constructive Visualization, that's another book. But they're, they're all saying the same things, yeah. which are visualize what you want, visualize your success, focus on it, and you will get it. Uh, but I think that the missing link to a lot of them is that that grinding work ethic that it takes to get towards that vision. That vision is there, and you're attracted to it. It's attracted to you, but there's there's stuff that happens in between. And so that's where I, that's why I like to focus on is that stuff. Have you ever read The Millionaire Mind by um, Thomas Stanley? No. <laughs> and so, I will not buy it. <laughs> you don't have to. So, in that book, pretty much in response to why has the American economy been so generous in rewarding millionaires, and obviously, probably your clientele, they're probably all millionaires, I, I would suspect. So, knowing a millionaire for someone in your industry is probably not that impressive, but probably to know billionaires would probably get your attention. But we're going to use millionaires because that's what they use in the book. So he says, because we provide a product or service that has strong demand, but few suppliers to fulfill that demand, we do not follow the crowd. That applies both to what we sell, which you mentioned selling earlier, and how we invest. So pretty much she's saying that's how, you know, that's the mindset of becoming a millionaire and probably a, a billionaire is that they don't follow the crowd. What's your thoughts on that? And how have how have you seen that if it's true work for for your clients? It is true, but what's interesting is that they they follow each other, and that's their crowd. So there's there's so two is sides. That the one percent? I mean, how big is well, that so crowd? So I'm going to give you an example. I went uh, went to a friend's house, very affluent friend. This was a bit ago. This was not this. Past, no, it was. It was this past New Year. So it was, uh, you know, 10 months ago. Mm -hmm. So the beginning of, of 2017, end of 2016, um, uh, bringing in the New Year. And we went, uh, there was a group of us that were, were still left at probably about 2, 3 in the morning. My friend loves, that's just what he loves. Yeah. He New, Year's. New Year's. New Year's. so. We're at his house. Nobody really wants to go home. And so there's a group of us sitting there. And I looked around. And there were clearly, because I, I knew everyone there, except for a couple of guys, at least five billionaires in that room. At least five. And everyone else had hundreds of millions of dollars. And one of the guys said, oh yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be a big correction in the market. Now, I've been talking to a lot of people. My people are telling me it's just, you know, big correction in the market. Market's going. Oh, and then they all started talking. Oh, yeah. My people say the same thing. Oh, yeah. So they're, they're all contrarians, and they all follow a different crowd, but their crowd is each other. Mm -hmm. So all these billionaires are saying the same thing. Well, the market has gone nothing but up since that conversation. So it's, so it's interesting to me that... Yes, they aren't followers of the average person, the the ninety nine percent, but they're followers of something. Everybody's a follower of something, and so any any group, any clique at any level is a follower of something. But yes, you're right. In general, the people with that mindset don't follow the rest of the herd, uh, but they follow other leaders, and so sometimes leaders can be misled. And as you were sitting there, I presume you were just taking it all in and not giving your two cents, so to speak, on the downturn that that was potentially going to happen. Because from what I know of you and the way that you conduct your business, it doesn't really matter what's going on in the market if you are advised well. 
Yeah, right? it does. Exactly. You said it well. That's 100%. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter because if you're advised well, you're where you need to be, you have the allocation you need to have. Uh, you know, it's, it's based on, uh, obviously, a lot of conversation, a lot of work, and it's, it's not done in a bubble. So it's, it's based on you as a whole person. I think too many people look at a portfolio as the money that's under management versus a portfolio is the entire person. It's where, where, is, where is everything and how does it all, all work together? Plus, in social situations, I'm not that guy. Yeah. That's just not who I am. People know who I am. And most of the clients that I get are from just genuine uh, relationships that are built over time where, where I will never bring it up. I don't. They know who I am. They know yeah. what I do. You know, people know you make suits. Exactly. And when it's they're ready. clear. And when they're ready, they come to you. I came to you. Right? How <laughs> long do you. we know each other for? A while. Yes. And I said, hey, I want to get a suit. I came to you. And it's just the way it works. Yeah. You, know, you never once asked me to, to make a suit for you. Exactly. Not once. And so and so I think that's that's when you're, you're at least for me, it's you're a consultant. You're an advisor. But you're a human being. Uh, and I think that people need to know what kind of a person you are. Uh, more than anything let's talk about some of the qualities that might be evident in an investor but some that maybe we we don't know of so a lot of times and i think we we mentioned it some qualities of a good investor might be tenacity might be courage i'm just throwing some things out there so you can correct me if i'm wrong and some people might even say that you need this mass intellect in order to accrue this this wealth. So we want to know some of the qualities that you see in people that have done very well in the market and in, in, in investing. And if maybe you might have a client that, and if he's listening or she, maybe they're not the sharpest tool in the shed, but they have certain qualities that made them acquire that wealth as opposed to just their intellect. Really, I think it's a really good question. Uh, the most important quality that anybody could have to be successful in, in investing uh, is understanding who they are. That's it. It's all you need. So it's it found on that. Hello. Yes. Oh, I will. It's, okay. it's, so it's not, it's not, those are good, you know, tenacity and, and strength. Those are great qualities. But, but here's, here's the example. So let's say that you, you have all those qualities where you have no fear and, and you, you're, you have this tenacity towards the market and you're gung ho and you're super aggressive, whatever, whatever those things are. Let's assume those are, those are good qualities to have. Okay. And uh, you can fight through pretty much any market cycle because obviously markets go up, markets go down, and you're just tenacious, you're sticking to it. You're... But the problem is, is if you hit a six or seven year market cycle where your tenacity is not paying off because you're so focused on getting that return and doing those high risk investments and your stomach can take it, you can become uh, bankrupt a lot quicker than the, the market is, is gonna lose its liquidity. The market is, is infinitely wealthy, so you can't, out, you can't outlast that. And there are people that have basically done that. Um, they just don't understand how much risk there is out there. Okay, so you take all these great qualities put them in the wrong market cycle, and all of a sudden those great qualities lead to disaster. It's like the business person that holds on too long. They see their businesses going in the wrong direction, mm -hmm. and they see the writing on the wall, but that's it. They're never gonna give up. They're, you know, they're, they're gonna gut through it no matter what. Great quality, but the problem is is that they hold on too long and they go down with the ship, and then what do they have to do? That's why you see that a lot of, a lot of millionaires have gone bankrupt three, four, five, six times, because they have that quality and they finally find something that sticks, right? Mm -hmm. um, so again, it's not, it's not necessarily that quality. 
Whereas you have other people that know who they are. They know they're risk adverse. They know they're nervous. They know they're scared. They understand their business and what do they do? They work hard in their business. They work for 20, 30 years. They save their money. They approach the market very cautiously. They balance everything out. And over time, they amass an extreme amount of wealth. Being a little timid, being a little nervous, being a little scared. See, see, so it's not, but they know themselves. Mm-hmm. They know who they are. They know they're that person. So they, they invest accordingly. So really what it comes down to is, are you investing accordingly based on your personality and based on who you are? And are, are some of your characteristics that you have, are, you, uh, are they causing you to do better or worse? And analyzing that and figure out where you need to be. So it's really complex. It's really complex. So there isn't one answer. Yeah. But I think the answer is you have to know who you are. Okay. I get that. I think I've read that somewhere before. I'm going to throw this one out. And another quality I heard would, would be you have to be disciplined. And then I think I read that they said that standing by your spouse through thick and thin equates to discipline. So if, so I'm trying to understand if they were saying if you've been in a, a marriage for years and you have that discipline to go through those relationships through thick and thin, is that a good person? Would that person do very well in the market because they have that discipline, so to speak? Does that make sense? I think it makes you a good person. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that it's tough to equate traits to success in the market or success in investing. You know, it's, it's like Stanford did a study, and it was a 20-year a study that uh, tracked the best managers, what they deemed as the best managers. They had a certain list of qualities, and they said, okay, well, we're, we're going to, to say, find these, these qualities of these managers, and we're going to assume those are the best. Uh, based on whatever metrics they came up with. And they isolated a thousand managers throughout the whole United States and big uh, companies. And they went in, they, they interviewed them, they looked at their personalities. And their goal was, it was, it was literally a 20-year study. Uh, their goal was to find the traits of the managers and say, okay, well, we want to put a book out that says, okay, great, 10 traits of a successful manager. Why? Then you can teach that. And you can build successful managers and successful companies. Uh, after the 20-year study, guess what they found? Well, obviously, they got the traits. Did they find people? No, they measured success. Okay. They so, measured success. Okay. And then based on that measure of success, they went out and interviewed those managers that they deemed successful mm-hmm. because of whatever you know metrics they had. Uh, and then they were trying to find the, the trait, the traits that were the same across all of them. Mm-hmm. Turns out, they couldn't find one trait that was consistent across everyone except really? for one. And that was that the best managers on the planet treat everyone differently. That's what they came up with. Nothing else was the same. Some of them were lazy. Some of them showed up late. Some of them were procrastinators. Some of them weren't. Some of them were disciplined. Some of them were on point. Some of them weren't. Some of them were organized. Some of them weren't. But the one trait that all these successful managers had were that they treated everyone differently. They treated people like human beings. Mm-hmm. So they, they just intuitively knew that for you, the carrot and the stick might work. Maybe you're driven that way. Maybe for another person, you've got to yell at them. For another person, you have to threaten their job. For another person, you have to nurture them and coddle them. And they realize that everyone is different, so they got the most work out of all the people that work for them because they understood that. So the reason I thought of that was because, yes, it's it's a great human trait that you stick in a marriage for years and years and years and years. It shows that either one, you're scared to death to get divorced, or two, <laughs> right, or two, that you're really committed. You say, you know what, I made a vow and I'm gonna stick to this and there'll be good times and bad and that's what I signed up for and I'm gonna do it. So you think that that trait would equate into being a good market participant or being a good investor. And so the, the logic is yes or no, because it depends on how much you have, 
what your cash flows are, what you're starting with, where you need to go. Those things are key variables because that trait would allow someone that has what I like, and Warren Buffett says this, and Warren Buffett's funny because Warren Buffett tells people to invest in a certain way, but it's not how he invests, and it cracks me up. But, but regardless, what he says is it would be better if you just put your money in the index fund and kept it there forever. Okay, but the other thing he says that people forget about is money that you don't need. Money that you don't need. Okay. Why? Because the cycle is going to go up and down, up and down, and that's like sticking to a marriage. Because if you look at the market cycle, it's great now, it's not great, you know, a year from now. That's the way that it works. So it's rocky. It's up and down. So that's where that stick to comes in. But if you need that money, if that money is important for your cash flow, if you need to withdraw from that money, if you need it to fund certain things, then that's, that's a bad strategy, right? Yes. So that's a bad plan. So that's a bad trait to have then. So the trait is more, more, it's a great trait to have, but what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to articulate is that everything that you do in life is situational. There is no one size fits all. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. So Buffett, is there a reason why he will. He would suggest investing in a, uh, in a different way than he does, or does he look at himself in a different sphere? And of course, people can't. The normal person can't invest in the manner I think, that he I does. really think that's what it is, and I don't know that he's doing it on purpose. I don't think that he's. You know, he's obviously tremendously sharp. He's one of the richest men in the world, and and but he's done it through the Buffett method. He tells people just put your money in an index fund, and he made a bet with someone you know, eight years ago that, that, that an index fund will outperform the best hedge fund manager over the next, you know, seven to eight years. Well, he was right. But also, this is the second best market that we've ever had over that given time span. The late 90s, we saw the same thing. The late 90s actually outperformed this, uh, this recent market. So, yes, you're, he's 100% correct. In this past time span, if you would have just purchased an index fund, you would have done better. But if you would have done the same thing in 2001, you would have done worse. If you would have done the same thing in 1990, you would have done worse. If you would have done the same thing in 1974, you would have done worse. Mm -hmm. So you can pick pockets of time where that strategy works, but only works during certain pockets of time. And so that, you know, I think that's the point of it. If you study history, you understand that that's not the way it works, and it isn't one size fits all. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, but he, I think, I think he's an elitist in investing. But again, not, not on purpose. I don't think he does it on purpose. He seems like he's a nice guy. Um, but it's exactly your point. He makes deals and he buys companies and he makes returns that, that other people will never see. He doesn't just sit there and buy index funds. He's very active in what he does. But he, I think, feels, well, the normal person can't do what I do. So I'm not going to advise them to do what I do because they can't do it. Yes. So they should just do this. And that's what's always interesting to me is, you know, don't do as I do, just do as I say. So meanwhile, he's amassing this massive quantity of wealth actually with a method and telling other people to do something a little bit different, which will work in pockets of time, but it won't work across time. How does one realize those pocket of, pockets of time Obviously, the advantageous pockets of time. Is that just Don't. guesswork? or you, you, you can't. And that's where people look at me and go, wait a minute, I thought you knew what you were doing. Yeah, I, I know that it, it's, you have, you understand what's going on in the underlying economy. You understand what's going on with interest rates. You understand how money's flowing. And it gives you certain biases. And you can say, okay, right now, based on what we have, that the market should continue on like this. But look, over the past five years, people have been saying that the market's going to correct, 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 correct. Okay? And some people have been saying it's going to go, 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 go. There's always a different opinion. So then the question is, can you continue to do well regardless of what your underlying opinion is? Right? Yes. Because great example is after the election. So after the election, obviously we know, we know what happened. Uh, so 
Trump unexpectedly won the election. There's, I don't know that there were many people on the planet that thought that was going to happen. And, you know, the, so the market was actually down big mm-hmm. that night, down huge. Uh, well, you had some people winning and said, sell everything, get out of everything. Intelligent investors, intelligent people who understood the markets, understood market forces, understood the economy, they've done the math, they're proficient in what they do, get out, end of the world. Some people went out and said, buy everything. Based on the policies, this is gonna be great. Okay, so guess what? Who was right? The people that that basically said, let's buy everything, Mm -hmm. right? Are they less intelligent? than the other people? Do they know? No, no, it has nothing to do with that. It's because they took an extreme position in the market and they happened to be right at that time. Does it mean they'll always be right on all the positions that they take? No, they're not always gonna be right. So then the trick is how can you put something together where you don't have to be right? Where you can have a bias, it's good to have a bias, it's good to have an understanding obviously but how can you put something together so that you can go through your life, do well, without having to ever be right? Well, and that's, and that's, that's, that's... Well, you have to be right at some point, right here or there, no? <laughs> so, they amass the wealth somehow in order to continue to be no, wrong. if you're talking about in investing, it's asset allocation. Mm-hmm. It's saying, okay, well, I know that certain risky assets are doing this, and I know that certain other assets are doing opposite to that, and I know that these other assets can go either way, and I know that these other assets are a hedge to those first assets, and it's how do you mix them together in the right combination that allows you to make money right, mm-hmm. when the market's going well, but also allows you to hedge yourself if the market's not going well, so that over time you do better, but it doesn't mean that you have to be right all the time. It's saying, look, when I, when I, when I am right, great, but when I'm wrong, okay, it's all right, I was wrong, but I've hedged myself enough. But then the art is not to overhedge because then you can't make money. So it's, it's just complex. It's just yeah. really complex. So to have, for somebody to actually understand it and to understand the methodology behind it, it's just a completely different level. There, there's, a, you know, there's financial advice and there's wealth management. That's a different level. It has a lot to do with how you construct things, the math behind it, uh, understanding correlations, understanding weightings. Uh, so there, there are statistical ways to build things that are customized for people that because, you know, I think the best thing you can say is, look, you don't have to be right. You just have to be involved. I like that. Let's do a segment that we do on every event with Trent the Gent. Normally, we would do invent with Trent the Gent, which would be what's the best invention of all times. You're not going to get that one. We've done Lent with Trent the Gent. What have you given up for Lent if you do that? <laughs> but today we're going to do spent with Trent the Gent. So with that said, when was the last time or the best time that you could say that was money well spent? Interesting. The last time I could well, say that was money well spent? It didn't have to be the last time, but I figured that might be one that you might recall quickly. But it might be one in your old life that you were like, you know what? That was the best money that I ever spent. Okay, so this I have to, full disclosure because you obviously know that we're very regulated. So, one, I haven't made any recommendations. You know that. Exactly. I haven't said anything specific about anything. You know that because mm-hmm. I'm not allowed to. Yes. Uh, and this is based on no analysis. This is based on no research. This is based on nothing but experience and understanding of market cycles and this is that one time where i can say uh there there's there's an old saying and it's invest when there's blood in the streets 
don't know if you've ever heard that saying. Invest when there's blood in the streets. So basically, when everybody's selling, that's the time to buy, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but the other half of the saying that most people don't know, because most quotes are not complete. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I did um, not know that. Yeah, most, that's interesting. most quotes are not complete. There's actually the entire quote was, invest when there's blood in the streets, even when it's your own. Hmm. And so money well spent was in 2008 when there was the massive market correction. And uh, basically took my cash and just started buying. My wife thought I was insane. And we had that conversation. And she said, well, are you sure? And I said, well, yeah. She goes, well, how do you know? I said, I don't know. And I said, but I look at this in one of two ways. One, the entire world is going to fall apart. We're screwed anyway. Money means nothing <laughs> at that point. Exactly. Right? Or two, this is the greatest buying opportunity of our, of our lifetime. So actually going through that and, and having the ability to do that, that was money well spent, clearly. Because uh, one, it, it helps you understand what you're made of. Two, it's always good to put your money where your mouth is. Um, but but three, it's the, it's the ability to kind of you know to test your your belief in, in who you are, your industry, all the things you've read, all the things that you've done. You know, do you really have that discipline? Can you really uh, follow through with those things? Um, so again, you know, knock on wood. Luckily, uh, again, I'm always believed in proper allocation. So if I didn't do that, it wouldn't have mattered because I was fine because of the way everything was constructed. Some things were up, some things were down, everything was fine. But that was definitely fun to go through because that was money well spent. That money made a lot of money because of the recovery. And again, nothing to do with any any research. It was just, okay, let's just go. It doesn't make sense to me that this company is not going to be around in 10 years, so maybe put some money there. I thought you were going to say something to the extent... I found a cufflink at a garage sale. <laughs> oh, so that's you, funny. You showed me. <laughs> um, another one that we do regularly would be, are you right-handed or left-handed? Interesting. Oh, you're thinking about it? No, I'm right-handed, but I had uh, surgery, hand surgery, about four years ago. It was on my right hand. And so I had to learn how to write with my left hand. And so ever since then, and I read somewhere that if you're right-handed and you use your left hand a lot, it actually makes you more intelligent. And I thought, I want to be more intelligent. So I continued on with that. So if you look at my desk, I use my mouse with my left hand. Okay, and I, I write see that. with my right hand. Simultaneously? I can do it simultaneously <laughs> if I need to. So, so yeah, I'm not I'm not naturally left-handed, but I've learned to use my left hand. And now it's actually a little uncomfortable for me to use the mouse with my right hand because I'm so used to doing it backwards now. Mm -hmm. So how so has it helped you? Has it have you do you think that you've become I don't want to say smarter, but the reason why you said you wanted to do that? You know, do you I, feel any differently? I don't know. I should have taken an IQ test before and after or something. Yeah, that would have been cool. No, but I keep on doing it. I think it's made me more coordinated. Yes. I'll tell you that. Now, I also heard, so when you do that, so when you write with your right hand, has your right hand handwriting, has that improved? Because I hear... You focus so much on the left, but it actually makes the right improve as well. No, my my left-handed writing is actually better than my right-handed writing, but it's because of the surgery. Ever since I had the surgery, my right hand, I actually have poor, my, my penmanship has, has gotten worse. Mm. And like little things I've noticed, my coordination, a hundred, my handle, I mean, I can't say it'll never be 100% because I always work on it and I still do physical therapy on my own because I know how to do it. And I figure eventually get back. But I think that because of the type of surgery I had, there was some nerve damage. And so I think the connection between my, my right hand and my brain isn't 
the same as it used to be. So for little uh, detailed work, it's not as good. It, it, it's interesting. Or even, and I, this is random, but I'll tell you, uh, I think most guys out there probably do this. Uh, uh, maybe everybody does, but do you ever, you know, you have a piece of a trash or something, what do you do? You sit back and you try to yeah, throw so it in. Yeah, and into the basket. Like, you know, like a basket. Mm-hmm. Like, a, like, like you're playing basketball. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what I noticed after the hand surge, I used to be really good at that. Just it's throwing off. Up, throwing up some bricks now. Yeah, I'm throwing up bricks all of a sudden. There's something <laughs> like, it's weird. It's like a little off. So anyway, that's, yeah. I'm working on it. So you mentioned the connection between the nerve, hand to the brain. So our follow-up question is normally, are you... Now, and most of my guests, just for full disclosure, have been right-handed for whatever reason. So are you right brain or left brain? Well, no, I would be left brain. So you're left brain. Yeah. If you're right-handed, you're left brain. That's what oh, is that how it works? Uh, are you sure? I, you can't be right-handed. It's very rare. Right-handed and right brain. Very rare. I'm right-handed and right brain. That's rare. You're rare. That's why you're Trent the Jed. You're just a rare guy. So, all right. So, it, it's funny. No one has ever said that. Now, you know this for a fact. That most, if you're right-handed, you're left-brain. And if you're left-handed, you're right-brain. Typically, yes. Hmm. Yeah, because the right brain controls the left side of your body. The left brain controls the right side of your body. That's how, that's how physiologically it works. Look it up. Okay, I will. So again, is anything hundred percent no? Yeah. You know, not not really. Like you have, and you see this. You know what goofy foot is? No, I don't. Goofy, goofy foot. foot. So typically, if you're if you're a surfer or a skateboarder, if you're right-handed, then typically your your left foot is forward. Okay. Okay, but if you're goofy foot. There's a reason it's called goofy foot. It means you're right-handed and your right foot is forward. So it, it, okay. it's just so that that's what I'm saying. Nothing's a hundred percent. Yeah. Nothing's a hundred percent. So obviously your brain is is controlling the whole uh, side of your body versus the, usually it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it's shifted All to right. a, you know dominant foot is the opposite of the dominant hand. Yeah. And most to this have answered, they're somewhere in between, right brain, left right. So it's interesting. You've probably done the most research on, on this. No, but I, <laughs> but in you know, and I understand when it comes. I think when it comes down to it, though, there's usually it has to do with you know creativity versus mm-hmm. analytics. Mm-hmm. So I am very analytical, but I also can draw well. I'm also artistic, so I'm, I think I'm a mix, but I think I'm dominant, <laughs> dominant left brain. Okay, but you're a mix. Well, yeah, I think everybody's a little bit of a mix, but what's your dominant? Yeah, okay. Let's go to the fill-in-the-blank segment. You're almost out of your misery here. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to say two words, and then you're going to fill in the blank. So don't stop blank. Moving forward. Moving forward. So, of course, I'm going to tell you to expound on that. It sounds self-explanatory, but... I think it's self-explanatory. Uh, the, way I, the way I look at, at life is that you just need to move. You just need to move forward. If you're going to have sticking points, that's life. That's just the way it is. Some days you don't feel like doing it. Do it anyway. You move forward. Uh, because if you stop, then you're actually moving backwards. If you stop, everybody else is passing you by. So it's just a commitment I made to myself that no matter what, just do it. Just move forward, regardless. Did, uh, I know you're, what happened to your, oh, there's Einstein. I said, I know you're an Einstein guy. Did he say nothing happens without movement? Was that him? You know? It sounds you know? like he probably said that. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that up. Why are you a, a big Einstein guy? Actually, for I think for different reasons than most people would think. Right, good. Let's uh, hear it. 
it, it's really because, well, one, he, I think he's clearly one of the, the smartest people on the planet. Uh, there's just a couple things, and it's, it's always these random things that, that uh, intrigue me. Uh, one was just something I read about him years ago, and it always stuck with me. No idea why, it just did. Uh, when somebody asked him his phone number, and he didn't know it, and they said, how could you not know your own phone number? And he says, I don't fill my mind with information that I can look up. My mind is reserved for other things. So I always thought that was interesting. It's like, you know, all the trivial stuff, that's why people say, oh, you should, you know, and I've heard this, they say, oh, you should go on uh, Jeopardy. And I said, no, I should not go on Jeopardy because I would do horribly at Jeopardy. They say, oh, it seems like you know so much. I really don't know that much. I really don't because most things I can look up. So trivia has never been interesting to me at all, at all, because I can Google it. Yeah. I, you know, back in the day, I'd go to the library. Uh, but it's thinking. I like to think. And so if I can fill my mind with thoughts and thinking and working on things and solving things, I figure that's better than filling it with a bunch of trivia. So it's like that. I figure, well, if Einstein isn't going to memorize things, then I'm not going to memorize things. Uh, but the other thing was they, they asked him what, uh, why we're here. They said, you know, they asked him, said, well, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? However you want to phrase it. And he said, we are here to serve others only. And I always thought that was an amazing answer. And you wouldn't expect that from him. So I thought that was so, for me, it was counterintuitive. Uh, everything that he did was in service of, of humanity. He thought that his calling was to, to figure out these secrets. And, and he was driven to do it. And it was to make, to make this world a better place. As corny as that is, but I thought, you know what, if Einstein can make this world a better place, then I can do it. And it's just little things. It's, you know, leave every place better than when you found it. You know, you see a piece of trash on the ground, pick it up. Why not? You just contributed to something. As trivial as that is, but you just contributed to something. So people like to say, you know, that what, what goes around comes around, and they like to say that, you know, that the universe will provide, and there's abundance for everyone. That's great, and those are, those are great sayings, and I think that people convince themselves that if they say it enough, that it'll happen. But I think the most important thing is the action that goes along with it the action that goes behind those things. And it all comes down to simple things like, you know what? Yeah, I'm here to serve others. Yeah, I'm here to make this a better place. But actually do those things. Serve others. Make this world a better place. Good thing I didn't do the trivia segment with you. <laughs> Sometimes I, I might know that. it. But, but <laughs> well, my, I'm not I'm doing it. Not. Uh, you give me a chance to Google it. I'll get them all right. That would be cheating. Uh, the second fill of the blank. You can blank. You can. You can. Do it. But yeah, don't, you can. Yeah, you're not gonna say that. <laughs> wow, that is really good. You, I mean, obviously, I think anybody who says you can do anything, you say it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you get that one a lot. Yeah. Wow, I like that. You are putting me on the spot. Yeah. You can be the captain of your own ship. Okay, so which like means that. you're in control of your destiny? Um, yeah. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, you, you are. You, you steer the ship where you want to steer it. But, you know, but again, it's up to you. It's in the doing. You know, I'm, all, I'm all about the action that you take to get to mm -hmm. where you want to go. And being able to just to grind it out. Yeah. And being able to to control it, but it's because you're willing to do the work that it takes. And if you commit to that, no one can derail you, no one can detract you. You can be derailed, derailed every day. You know, people get derailed all the time. It's that, you know, it's that saying, you know, get knocked down nine times, stand up ten. And that's what it is. You're always going to get derailed. And that's why I think most people give up. I heard somebody say something uh, the other day. And uh, they said, you know, I wish, you know, people talk about today's society. And they say, oh, man, I, I'm glad I'm not a kid today. I'm glad I'm not a kid today. You know, the world is crazy. Look what's going on. And I heard someone say, man, I wish I was a kid today. And, and they said the reason is because people are so 
all right with mediocrity. And nobody wants to work anymore. Everybody wants everything given to them. And, and he said, you know, if I was a kid today, I would clean up. Because if all you have to do is outwork everyone around you, in today's society, that's easy. Because nobody wants to work. It's all, oh, I, I want to go work at this internet company. I want to make 200 grand a year right out of the gates. Oh, I want to invent this app. Oh, I want to go on YouTube. I'm, everything is so now, now, now. I want it today. I want it today. I want it today. But nobody's willing to work for it. So, so, so I think part of it is that you will be derailed along the way. You will be knocked down. But the character that you develop comes from standing up. Standing yeah. up, standing up. So in that way, it, it's not, it, in that way you are derailed, right? Because, but it's not because you haven't been knocked down, it's because you know how to get back up, yeah. you know how to get back on the right track. Yeah, the phrase that I think about is, everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die to get there. So yeah, it's, yeah. And I seldom think that about this, Millennials, generations, they're brilliant, but as you said, they want it immediately. And right. it's like, how do you do that? Well, yeah, and sacrifice I, is not a, a, a big word in, uh, in our vocabulary anymore. And, and this is, you know, I, I always want to attempt to stay on topic, uh, but, and I think this is, you know, this is part of it. But, you know, what you said made me think, are we, are we helping people by giving everybody a trophy? Are we helping people by, I heard that, and I never knew this, I heard that today, in Little League games, they don't keep score. They just play X amount of innings, and at the end, they end it. Oh, see, but, I, I thought that was just if it was a blowout, no, then there's no, no score. But No, there's no score at all. Nice. <laughs> and so I think, well, but what's that teaching people that, so it's always oh, for the fun of the game. I mean, I, I get it, but... My understanding is that sports are there to teach you teamwork, competition, how to be a good loser, you know, how, how to not be a sore loser, how to be humble in victory, how to be gracious in defeat. Those are all these qualities that sports are supposed to teach you. It's a learning lesson. Well, so what are they teaching you now? I don't think they're teaching you the same thing that they used to teach you. So... That, that's why I think I go back to there's certain concrete uh, truths that I think exist. And it's buckle down, work hard, stay focused, learn how to grind, stay positive. You know, just, and that's just the way that I look at it in my life. The third fill in the blank conversations are. Exciting was the first thing that came to my mind. Exciting. So do you make it a point to make every conversation exciting? Because obviously it's a two-way street, and if you're talking to someone that may not be into it, how, how do you keep it exciting for yourself, at least? I'm interested in people's stories. So you're interviewing me right now uh, because you're interested in what I have to say. So that's the side of the fence that you're on right now. When I think in a conversation, there's times to be interested and there's times to be interesting. And it's a fine line knowing where you are in the conversation. That's why they're exciting to me. There's a give and a take. Uh, so obviously, the you know one of the one of the big rules is listen more than you speak. But if both people are following the same rule, then nobody's going to talk. And I've been in those conversations. I've been in those conversations where the other person knows that rule, you know that rule, and then they're trying to ask you, and then you're flipping around trying to ask them, so it ends up with these endless questions that never never get really answered because the other person is trying to be so interested in the yes. other person. So, you know, it's like watching a boxing match with two counterpunchers. It's not that exciting because they're both waiting for the other guy to go because they want to counterpunch. Then nothing ever happens. It's the most boring fight on the planet. Uh, that's why I think, again, it's a, a, a really good conversation is an engagement where there are times to be 
interesting and excited about what you have to say, but then also you want to be interested in the other person and just as excited in what they have to say. And that's how you learn about people and that's how you build relationships. That's so interesting. I, I never thought about it that way because yeah, if they both ascribe to that thought, they're both trying to be great listeners and the conversation is not going anywhere. That's, that's great. Uh, let's end, and not unless you take it somewhere else, let's end, and, and obviously both of us, we, we do a lot of networking and we you know like to, to meet individuals. Is knowing people almost as good as cash in the bank or investing your money? Is, is knowing people almost as good as you know, having that cash and being able to invest it is so that that relational capital is that even more important? I think it is. And like with everything I say, there's always an asterisk. Uh, but I was so, I don't know if you knew this, I've been involved for probably about the past eight years uh, helping teach a class at UCI. Yes. Okay. So, uh, and it's at the MBA school. Uh, the professor says something at the beginning of class. So these are MBA students. They're, they're the cream of the crop. Uh, they're, uh, they're highly intelligent. And first day, first day of class uh, for his first year students, he'll, he'll basically say, you know, ask them what they're there for. And uh, you know, get different answers. And, and one of the clear things is that they're there for an MBA. They're there for a degree. They're there to propel their careers. And there are all these answers that are career-oriented and, and MBA and education. And he says, okay, that's great. But you're, you're getting this MBA to do better in your career, to be better in your life, to make more money, whatever the case is. But if you're just doing it for that, then you're missing the entire point of what's actually going to help you in your life. It says the most important thing in this school, in this MBA program, is sitting to your right and sitting to your left and sitting behind you. These people that you meet are gonna be the difference between massive success and mediocrity. Not the degree, it's not the MBA. Because you'll learn stuff and you'll get through it and you'll get the MBA. He goes, but this is your network and the people that you meet here will make your career. And and it's you know, and you see the people nodding their heads and wow, wow, this is pretty deep, you know, and taking notes or, or whatever the case is. And and so yes, in answer to your question, I really believe that. It's the people that you know. This is we're, we're in the service industry. That's what we do. We serve people. You serve people. I serve people. Pretty much everybody that we know are serving other people in some respect. Einstein did. Einstein did. <laughs> so you have to know people. And uh, But I think that the asterisk that I said is, is, so yes, it's clearly important. But it's not as much as who you know that's important as who knows you. Because you can know a lot of people. But if a lot of people don't know who you are, what you do, the type of person you are, uh, then it doesn't help as much to know all those people. So again, it can, it's that two-way street. That's where it becomes, do you want to know a lot of people or do you want to have relationships with a lot of people? And how many relationships can you have before it's too many. And that's why they say, you know, a, a good networker, you know, knows two, three hundred people. But does that make them a good networker that they know that many people? Because I probably know five hundred people. I, I think, maybe more. Mm -hmm. You know, but I but I know them. I know of them. I kind of know who they are. I have a business card. But do I really know them? No. But can I say that I legitimately know and have relations? relationships with a hundred people. Yeah, I can say that. Do I think it could be too much more than that? I think it's tough. Yeah. I think it's tough. 
So you can only really know so many people. Well, that's the most time to get to know right. so many people. So I, I'm of the school of thought that I would rather get to know someone. I would rather build that relationship than know a lot of people. I would rather know fewer people, but really know them. So with that said, we always give the, the listeners an opportunity to, to get to know the, the guests. And you just said you're probably at the max. <laughs> but what's the best way for the listeners to contact Andre Julian? Have them call you. Okay. You can introduce them to me. All right. So everyone call me. You know how to reach me. Um, and then we can get you in contact with Andre. And so no social media, none of that. Is that because, no, do, do you do that or? Compliance. Okay. Oh, so. I don't do any social media. Now, is that, is that just wealth advisors that can't do social media or is that just anyone? Wealth advisors. In, okay. I never knew that. Yeah. Independent wealth advisors will sneak around it and do it anyway. Uh-huh. But no, the, the regulations state no. Yeah. That's smart. So, there you go, Ventures. Reach me, and I'll get you in contact with Julian. Oh, oh, I'll call you Julian. Andre. So, Andre, all I have to say is I want to thank you for this hour, a little bit over an hour that we spent together. And just as um, the professor at UCI said, you know, people sitting next to you, I want to thank you for sitting across from me. It's been um, It's been a pleasure getting to let the, the audience and the listeners hear about you and hopefully they'll they'll reach out to me and we can make some more connections and add some more relationships to your Rolodex. Uh-huh. You can probably use a Rolodex since you're not <laughs> on social media. No, it's CRM. I have a CRM. Uh, there you go. All right. So thank you. And um, we'll see you down the line. Venters, as Andre said, keep moving forward. Make sure that part of your movement is sharing this podcast with your loved ones and associates. Until the next episode of Vent with Trent the Gent, please keep serving others.